Now we're going to move on to the main section of the meeting. Um, first of all, quickly take you through the structure of the meeting. Uh, our speaker will talk for around 30 to 40 minutes. After that, we'll break out into smaller groups for 10 minutes using the Zoom breakout function. There we can discuss some of the things that um, DPA our speakers raised and collectively come up with some more questions for our, uh, one per question per group. Uh, then we'll come back and have a Q&A that will run until about 7.30 p.m. A few housekeeping details quickly. Uh, please make sure that your microphone is muted at all times. Uh, this reduces the problem of feedback uh, and means everyone will have a better experience. Uh, for most of you, that will be a button in your bottom left of your screen. Uh, screen. Uh, quickly, many of you might have heard about people disrupting Zoom meetings. I just want to let you know we've taken a number of precautions to prevent this and we have a security team on hand to eject anyone from the meeting if that in the unlikely case that uh, it happens that will happen so just bear with us so i've got the great pleasure of introducing our speaker tonight professor deepa kumar uh, deepa is a professor of journalism and media studies at rutgers university where she was also the president of the faculty union the uh, aft aaup Deepa is a leader, leading thinker on topics of racism, Islamophobia, and imperialism. She's written for Jacobin, uh, as well as a host of academic and non-academic uh, publications. She's also the author of the fantastic book, Islamophobia and the Politics of Empire, that I'd recommend to everyone. So, Deepa, away. Thank you, Pete, for that generous introduction. Um, I just want to say about Neil Davidson, um, that was a beautiful tribute and uh, for uh, people in Scotland, just to let you know that he had many friends and comrades here in the United States and he will be sorely missed. So let me pull up. Uh, hang on a second, I can't seem to find my presentation. No worries, take your time. Okay, so this is a little bit challenging. I've never done a Zoom presentation with PowerPoint and with my notes in Word sitting somewhere there. So we'll try to do the best we can. There we are. Can you see it? Okay, great. So uh, two firsts that um, I am attempting today. The first is, of course, trying to do the Zoom presentation uh, with a PowerPoint, and let's hope uh, that works out. Second, I've actually never given a presentation to a Scottish audience before, uh, perhaps because I don't know very much about Scottish history or uh, politics. So I really look forward to learning uh, from you. So the topic is racism, capitalism, and imperialism. And let me begin by making a very basic point, which is that there is no such thing as race, right? We know this. Um, there is no genetic or biological evidence for the existence of races. Um, races are produced at particular moments to serve particular ends. And this is known as racial formation or simply racialization. And what's happening is that a group of people are being turned into a race for a particular reason. Now, the modern um, understanding, the modern conception of race is site-oriented or phenotypical. 
And so race refers to physical characteristics, to skin color, shape of eyes, various other facial features, hair texture, or article of religious clothing, such as hijabs or kippahs. Um, this is not to say, of course, that people who are phenotypically white, like the Irish or the Italians or Eastern Europeans and so on, have not been racialized in the United States in particular, but certainly elsewhere, but that for the most part, we know race because we, quote unquote, see it, right? And we create this essentialized other who we understand through a handful of characteristics. Okay, so these characteristics, if you look at them, right, skin color, shape of eyes, and so on, they're really arbitrary. Um, so when I teach about this in my classes, what I say is, you know, everyone who's under five feet, five inches tall, can you raise your hand? And about, you know, I don't know, about half of the class raises their hands, as do I, because I'm, I'm a short person. Um, and I make the point that there isn't a shorty race, right? There is no tall race, there is no shorty race. In other words, it is not the case that every marker of difference becomes the uh, basis of othering and that there is no uh, tendency within human beings when they see these markers of difference to automatically other people, right? So I think that's an important uh, point to keep in mind. And again, um, the idea of the modern idea of races must be understood as being produced at certain historic moments to serve particular ends. Okay, so I wanna to try to do three things in my talk today. First, I'm gonna lay out in broad brushstroke some of the ways in which Marxists and socialists have thought about race and racism and outline some bodies of thought. Um, I'll briefly talk about a method about how to think about racial formation. And finally, I will apply that to uh, an analysis of how Arabs and later Muslims in the United States are turned into racialized groups, particularly in the context of uh, the turn to neoliberalism in the early 70s, but certainly later on uh, with the war on terror. Um, okay, so one caveat before I begin, my talk is American-centric. And in a way, that's not a bad thing because after all, new world slavery and settler colonialism are key motors in the production of modern racism. Um, I'll be talking a little bit about the UK and France when I'm talking about colonialism, but I won't be saying very much more about that um, uh, as it applies to Ireland, for instance, or Scotland. And I'm really hoping, as I said earlier, to learn from you and to have this be a collaborative process by which we can all increase our understanding of race and racism. So let's begin then with what Marx himself had to say about race. Um, this is from Capital, and this is one of the most oft quoted um, you know, things that Marx has written about this subject. Uh, and he says, quote, in the United States of America, every independent workers movement was paralyzed as long as slavery disfigured a part of the Republic. Labor in a white skin cannot emancipate itself where it is branded in a black skin. And so Marx argued that capitalism was grounded in slavery and that racism blunted class consciousness among workers from the dominant groups. 
And of course, as a caricature of Marx, that you know he had nothing to say about race, and that um, you know all that Marx stood for was a question of class, and that's that's not true. In fact, um, I would recommend Kevin Anderson's book, Marx at the Margins, where he argues that Marx wrote not only about class but also nationalism, race, ethnicity, and so forth. At any rate, um, this uh, notion that Marx put forward that racism is a tool that's used to divide the working class is one that gets taken up by Marxists uh, and socialists after him. So W.E.B. Du Bois, for instance, in his book, Black Reconstruction, oh, hold on, let me not go to that quote before I'm ready to read it. So W.E.B. Du Bois, in his book, Black Reconstruction, argues that in the slave plantation system in the South, poor whites were brought into an identification with the planter elite by being given positions of authorities over blacks, such as as overseers, as slave drivers, as members of slave patrols, and so forth. And so with this associated feeling of superiority, what happens is that their hatred for the wider plantation system that actually impoverishes them is displaced onto black and enslaved people. So what's going on is that class antagonism was racialized and turned into a pillar of stability for the slave plantation system. And Du Bois used the term psychological wage to describe the sense of superiority granted to non-white, uh, uh, to I'm sorry, non-elite whites in the South. And here's how he put it. Quote, it must be remembered that the white group of laborers, while they receive a low wage, were compensated by a sort of public and psychological wage. They were given public deference and titles of courtesy because they were white. They were admitted freely with all classes of white people to public functions, public parks, and the best schools. The police were drawn from their ranks, and the courts, uh, and the courts depended, uh, dependent under their votes, treated them with such leniency as to encourage lawlessness. On the other hand, in the same way, the Negro was subject to public insult, was afraid of mobs, was liable to the jibes of children and the unreasoning fears of white women and was uh, compelled almost continuously to submit to various badges of inferiority. The result of this was that wages of both classes could be kept low. The whites fearing to be supplanted by Negro labor, the Negroes always being threatened by the substitution of white labor. So this is classic divide and rule, right? They divided both to conquer each, is the argument that W.E.B. Du Bois makes. Now, David Rodiger builds on Du Bois's analysis in a book called The Wages of Whiteness, um, and he looks at 19th century US labor history to show all of the instances where white workers chose to act against black workers rather than acting in solidarity with them. Uh, but in doing so, however, he sort of more or less offers the proposition that interracial solidarity was nigh impossible. And for that reason, the book has come under a lot of critique for being pessimistic, um, and in fact, even for misrepresenting Du Bois's argument, because Du Bois, like Marx before him, um, insisted that solidarity was possible, and further, that the benefits of racism didn't actually flow to white workers, even if there were some you know, small uh, uh, privileges, if you will, granted 
but that it really went to uh, the ruling class. At any rate, I mention uh, this book because I want to talk about a tradition that comes out of Rodiger as well as Theodore Allen and Noel Ignatieff and other socialists who were writing in the 60s and 70s about white privilege. Today, that means something completely different. At the time, it was much more Marxist and socialist in its orientation. And uh, we see the formation of what's known as critical white studies, critical whiteness studies, I'm sorry. Uh, it's a very productive body of work. And um, actually, along that line, I would recommend uh, Rilliger's Working Towards Whiteness, which is about how um, Eastern European and Southern European immigrants who move in large numbers to the United States back at the end of the 19th and early 20th century, how they get racialized, but then eventually accepted into whiteness after World War uh, II. If nothing else, it's very useful in terms of an understanding of how races are produced at certain moments and for uh, certain reasons. And by the way, um, it's also the case that um, um, Syrian, Syrian Christians who immigrated to the US at the time are racialized but then get accepted into whiteness um, after the Second World War. So I have a few uh, caricatures and cartoons to help people see the ways in which um, the Irish as well as uh, the Italians were racialized. So here's one. Um, can you see the caption? The most recently discovered wild beast and presumably the person in the cage is Irish, right? So dehumanization, this happens um, before the racialization of um, the Western and Southern Europeans, right? Because the Irish are the first uh, mass um, we see the same uh, here. There's a comparison. The person on the left is African-American. The person on the right is Irish, presumably equally bad because, you know, those are the scales on which they are on. And here we have Italians. The slurs that were used were Dago and Wop, right? And you see that he's of a slightly darker uh, complexion. And finally, here's from 1903, uh, America, unrestricted dumping ground. If you see on the bottom right corner, that's uh, the mafia, the person, the, the rat wearing the hat, which says mafia is presumably a representation of Italians. Um, the others, uh, because they're wearing sombreros, we can assume are Mexican possibly or other Latin American uh, immigrants. So all of this is taking place uh, around the turn of the uh, 19th and start of the 20th century. Um, at any rate, this is a long way to say that there has been a productive strand of thinking about how divide and rule has been um, a key way in which racism can be understood. Um, and it's certainly an important mechanism but I want to say that it is not the only venue of racial formation. So uh, too often in the US, when leftists talk about the origins of racism, the discussion begins and ends with slavery and the discussion uh, and the legacy of slavery. Um, and indigenous rights activists and indigenous studies scholars have actually offered a really important corrective, right? Which is to say that capitalism 
not only needs to discipline and exploit labor, but it also needs land to reproduce itself. Um, and the settler colonial mission and westward expansion in the United States was really the key venue, the key producing grounds for anti-Native American um, uh, racism. So I have some images of that too. Um, so you see here, you know, sort of literally the reversal of uh, history. Um, here, you know, you've got, uh, I mean, the real story of the conquest of the United States and the formation of the United States of America is the genocide of Native people, right? The mass murder of Native people. And here you have the reversal of these finely dressed English gentlemen, presumably being uh, lynched by these supposed barbarians, right? That was the rhetoric that was developed, that Native Americans are barbaric, heathen, uncivilized, and therefore not worthy of keeping their lands. So here's another one. There's a gender dynamic here, and this has a long history, uh, which is that white women are in danger uh, from the lust of Native men. This is, by the way, a trope that gets used again and again. It's used after the Civil War <coughs> to create the myth of the Black uh, uh, rapist um, and so forth. Um, so yeah, there is the development of an ideology to, to um, justify westward expansion and, and settler colonial project. But I want to emphasize that racism is not just an ideology. Racism is best understood as an ideology and a practice. Um, I understand that some of you are doing a study group on Gramsci. Um, and just as people like to sort of capture the notion of hegemony as coercion plus consent, I think one way to think about racism is ideology plus practice. So to summarize uh, very quickly, race is not a biological category, as I said earlier, but an ideology. However, race is not simply an ideology, it is also a set of practices. In other words, it relies on structural discriminatory practices which are baked into uh, institutions. Um, slavery is one such practice, dispossession is another. In other words, it is both exploitation and expropriation that inform projects of racial formation. And the way that indigenous studies scholar Patrick Wolf puts it is that race is, quote, not a singular or unified project, but a hydra-headed assortment of local practices. In other words, it doesn't look the same or feel the same or have the same logic um, um, when it applies to various different groups. So let's take the example of the uh, one drop of blood rule. Right? So if you had one drop of African ancestry, that made you black in this country. And of course, that was helpful in terms of justifying people's enslavement. And in the post-emancipation uh, you know, period, uh, in the Jim Crow South, which is where you know, there was um, a segregation um, of most public, of all public spaces, again, this, this kind of logic enabled those practices. But for Native Americans, it was the exact opposite logic, right? So any amount of Native ancestry 
when combined with whites, even one drop, compromised one's native status, right? These were known as blood quantum laws. And the reason that this logic made sense, at least from the point of view of the system, was that then people were denied uh, any rights to the land that their people had lived on for thousands of years. Um, and there are some court cases as well that are informative. Here, I, I, I want to you know, just sort of stress the point about why race is not just an ideology and racism is not just an ideology, but it's baked into institutions such as the law, for instance. So there are two cases I want to talk about. Uh, one is Cherokee v. Georgia. Um, the Cherokee people had lived in the state of Georgia for thousands of years. However, once the United States was formed, they were stripped of citizenship. They became non-citizens uh, with few rights other than the right to live in Georgia. I mean, think of the profound irony, right? The people who've inhabited the land, uh, the settler colonial mission is complete, and of course, they denied citizenship. At any rate, even that right to live on the land is one that the state of Georgia sought to remove from them. Uh, and to push them out westward. And so the Cherokee Nation sought a federal injunction and uh, you know, tried to adjudicate this matter in that way. The case never even went to trial because the judge ruled that the Cherokees were a quote-unquote dependent nation with a relationship uh, to the United States like wards uh, to its guardian. In other words, they were reduced to children, right? The way that one judge put it is there's no plaintiff in the case. It, just as children can't bring lawsuits, right? So uh, Native American people could not bring this lawsuit. They were dehumanized, they were infantilized, and the case uh, you know, didn't even make it to trial. You see the same sort of uh, non-citizenship in the case of African Americans, even in the case of slaves who lived in an uh, area where slavery was prohibited. This is the Dred Scott v. Sanford case of 1857. And the Supreme Court ruled that Dred Scott, who resided in a free state and territory where slavery was in fact prohibited, was not entitled to his freedom and that African Americans were not and could not ever be citizens of the United States. Uh, 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 uh. Okay. All right, I don't know where my notes are at this point, but I'll just keep going. Okay, so I, I wanna then turn to uh, the question of method um, and how to understand racial formation. I think some of the best work is by Barbara and Karen Fields in this book called Racecraft, if you haven't read it. And the way that uh, Fields and Fields put it is that racism is first and foremost a social practice, which means that it is an action and a rationale for action or both at once, right? So this is the emphasis that I've been giving in this talk as well, is it's a set of practices, it's a set of social practices, which sometimes are accomplished, uh, which are set in stone immediately with a racist ideology, and at other times takes a much longer time. So the uh, Barbara Fields' argument is that the anti-black ideology develops in the decades and in fact even centuries after the practice of slavery is institutionalized. And interestingly, I found the same to be true when it comes to the racialization of Arabs as terrorists in particular, and I'll come to that shortly. Um, so to continue with uh, the work of Fields and Fields, 
They say, while racism always takes for granted the objective reality of race, this is a slate of hand as it transforms racism, something the aggressor does, into race, something the target is, right? So racism sort of naturalizes races when in fact we know that races don't exist. So to sum up the method, um, uh, on the left, I have what is my favorite quote from Barbara Fields. Uh, this is her piece in New Left Review, um, where she basically says that historians think of slavery in the United States as primarily a system of race relation, as though the chief business of slavery were the production of white supremacy as ideology, rather than the production of cotton, sugar, rice, and tobacco. So it's a very materialist understanding of the rise of uh, racism rooted in the needs of capital and the slave plantation system and so forth. And certainly uh, cotton particularly uh, is, is a very important input for industrial production in uh, the UK. Um, and industrialization in the UK you know, give slavery a new lease of life in the um, United States. And so racist ideas to justify this massive expansion, dehumanization of African-Americans is very much tied to the system of capitalism, slavery, industrialization, um, and so forth. So race and racism are historically contingent projects that come out of material context to state that race is socially constructed which is the more postmodern take, only gets us so far. What is important, says Patrick Wolf, is how races are constructed under what circumstances and in whose interests, right? So that's the method that um, I follow. Um, before I go into my analysis of uh, Terracraft, I want to say a little bit about colonialism. Um, now, many theorists have argued that race is a modern phenomenon, even if some of the ideas that inform modern notions of race can be found in the Middle Ages or even before that. And people have argued that the Enlightenment or the intellectual and philosophical movement in Europe of the 17th and 18th century actually laid the basis for modern notions of race. And Wolf argues that while religion justified colonialism in the 16th and 17th century, this is, it's not just Wolf, you know, this is widely uh, accepted, race became the organizing grammar of particularly 19th century uh, colonialism. And he says this was precipitated by the shift towards an industrial um, economy. So uh, to go to this slide, in the 16th and 17th century, uh, the exploitation of native people in the new world, was condoned by arguing that Indian quote-unquote savages were idolaters, that is to say they were idol worshippers, and of course this was the worst thing you can be in the Middle Ages, um, and therefore God had ordained that they be enslaved by Christians. Similarly, the enslavement of Africans was also justified through the book of Genesis, the myth of the curse of Ham or Canaan, and it was said that their skin color um, had, uh, you know, their skin was dark because it marked the curse. So even after they converted to Christianity, they could still be retained as slave because, you know, they were cursed, right? So you see all these uh, justifications, very convenient justifications for uh, this kind of dehumanization. 
But, but there's a shift, as I said earlier, in the 18th century after the Enlightenment to scientific justifications based on notions uh, developed in the Enlightenment and with the growth of science. So scientists like Carl Linnaeus and uh, Blumenbach divided human beings into various races with distinct characteristics. So Blumenbach established a fivefold schema white, red, black, brown, and yellow. And what flowed from such characterizations, uh, particularly in the context of colonialism, was that white Europeans were seen as superior and the other darker people were either ugly at best um, or semi-civilized, right? Um, so these are some of the ways in which these others were scientifically understood, right? You see skull um, drawings here. This is from a book called Types of Man Mankind. And you see at the bottom, there's an ape. And right above that is a dark-skinned man, presumably African, but certainly this could be a darker-skinned person from East South Asia as well. And over that is Apollo, by the way, Apollo, the Greek god. And this is actually a sketch of the statue of Apollo. So in fact, he doesn't, you know, he, presumably he doesn't have a skull, but you know, he's the ideal man. Um, uh, but you get the idea, there is a hierarchy being established with uh, brown and black people obviously being closer to the ape than to the ideal, which is uh, the white race uh, represented by the Greek god Apollo. And of course, if that's your way of understanding different human beings, their capacities, their mental capacities, their skull shapes, and so on, it flows from that that, the, uh, that whites had the burden to go off and civilize uh, these benighted masses. And in fact, you see that very clearly in advertising, for instance. This is from Anne McClintock's book, Imperial Leather, Pear Soap. Do you still have Pear Soap in... Uh, the UK, presumably you do. Um, anyway, pear soap, uh, you see the copy here. The first step towards lightening the white man's burden is through teaching the virtues of cleanliness. Um, and so pear soap comes in um, as a way to wash these masses. And by the way, I'll take a little uh, quick segue here to say that currently in the United States, we have seen a massive ratcheting up of racism against East Asians. Right, and that's very consciously orchestrated by Trump and the right wing. Um, they're calling this the Chinese virus and not the coronavirus, and there's a reason for that. It's it's geopolitical in the sense of you know China being the enemy of the United States, and there's certainly a longer history of this in terms of China being the enemy going back to the to the uh, early 1990s. But it draws on earlier notions of yellow peril which comes into being in the middle of the 18th century, 19th century in the United States. And part of the argument is that these people are dirty, right? They bring with them disease. They bring with them things that murk up, that muddy up the body politic, if you will. So these ideas are everywhere. They're not just ideas of the British Empire. They're certainly part of the narrative of the American Empire um, as well. And here's another one from the British context. So here you see this uh, white baby using transparent soap to uh, whiten 
uh, a black baby, right? The white boy's burden, we might say. Um, and of course, as much as he may be whitened, his face still remains dark because he can never quite fully be white, right? So half devil, half child is the way that uh, Rudyard Kipling put it at the turn of the century. Now, in case you think that these sorts of blatantly racist ideas are part of ancient history, think again. The uh, British-Dutch uh, multinational Unilever ran this ad in 2017. Right, a beautiful black woman uses Dove lotion and becomes white because that's apparently what she should be doing. Okay. So that's um, as much as I'm going to say about uh, slavery, colonialism, settler colonialism, setting the context for the birth of modern racism. I'm now going to uh, pivot to my own work on anti-Arab and anti-Muslim racism. This is actually a tiny, tiny part of what I'm going to say today, that is a tiny part of a paper that is coming out in the journal Race and Class. Um, in July, so, and uh, the editors have been kind enough to make it available for a few months to anyone who wants to read it. It's not going to be behind a paywall. So if anyone's interested uh, in this piece, uh, perhaps Pete can share it uh, when it comes out to this uh, group of people. So very quickly, because I know I've been taking a lot of time, probably another five or ten minutes, Pete, is that okay? Yeah, that's fine. Um, five if possible. Okay. So terror craft is what I'm calling this process of Arab and Muslim racial formation. Um, obviously in the post 9-11 world, terrorism is overwhelmingly associated with Arabs, Muslims, and South Asians, so much so it has become common sense. But this has not always been the case. As I said earlier, Arab Americans were integrated into whiteness just as their Eastern and Southern European counterparts were in the post-World War II period. But the social, economic, and political crises of the late 60s and 70s actually shifted the situation and laid the basis for the racialized terrorist threat. So what's going on briefly in the United States? One, economically, the US is losing its hegemony on the global stage. It's facing competition from Germany and Japan. Uh, U.S. share of world trade and manufacturing begins a process of decline. Uh, Bretton Woods, the agreement uh, is called to an end. There are, there's the oil shocks in 1973. So there's a massive economic crisis that the U.S. is in the throes of. At the same time, there is also a political crisis because it's losing the war in Vietnam. And there's a massive anti-war movement in the United States that is, uh, you know, so both abroad and in the United States, empire is in crisis at this moment. And it was not just an anti-war movement that we saw in this country. There was also a civil rights movement, which had become the Black Power movement by the end of the 60s, uh, feminist movement, gay liberation movement, um, and so forth, right? So that was the social crisis um, that marked this period. And so why and when are Arabs turns into racialized threats? This is the context, right? The crisis. But particularly, it was after the 67 Arab-Israeli war um, with the development of an Arab left, the second generation of immigrants who come to the US after the Second World War 
come here with ideas of nationalism, Arab nationalism, and with ideas of anti-imperialism. And the 67 war is a really important moment for uh, the formation of left groups in the United States, particularly Arab American uh, left groups. And these groups would now start to have relationships with the broader anti-imperialist and anti-capitalist left, particularly groups like SNCC, and the Black Panthers, all of whom supported the Palestinian side over the Israeli side after the 1967 war. So here's how Ruth Wilson Gilmore puts it. She says, from the Ellie Watts uprising onwards, radical black, brown, yellow, and red power movements fought the ways the state organized poor people's perpetual dispossession in service to capital. Radical white activists, students, wage workers, welfare rights agitators, added to domestic disorders by aligning with people of color. So here you have it, right? Uh, uh, Multiracial organizing. They also launched autonomous attacks against symbols and strongholds of US capitalism and Euro-American racism and imperialism. And this was a massive threat to US political and economic uh, hegemony. In particular, the thinking at the time was that the Arab left should not be allowed to create the kind of movement that the anti-Vietnam War movement had uh, you know, sparked, because if it did, then the US would lose its ability to have control over oil resources in the Middle East, and that had to be prevented at, you know, uh, using whatever means necessary. And the means really were counterinsurgency methods, right? So counterinsurgency is basically a way in which um, before a threat can fully develop, it is stymied. It is, you know, uh, put back into the bottle, as it were. And this is something that the U.S. had been using internationally ever after, uh, uh, you know, since uh, the Second World War. And uh, the imperial states' expanding policing capacity around the world coincided with the same tactic of incarceration being used uh, domestically. And so. Um, Oh, hold on, before I go there. And so what happens after 67 is that the FBI and uh, so on and other state agencies start to surveil and racially profile um, Arab Americans, particularly the Arab American left, right? And so what happens is in the process of doing that, they create a racialized other, which gets ratcheted up after the 1972 Munich incident. Um, what happens in Munich is that um, Palestinian activists uh, in the group Black September take Israeli athletes hostage at the Munich Olympics, and then in the context of a botched rescue operation, murder all the uh, Israeli um, athletes. And that sends a certain kind of message on the global stage about terrorism and who the terrorist is. But in the United States, there was no policy around terrorism, and there was no vocabulary around terrorism. But uh, the Nixon administration actually launches a whole series of initiatives based on the logic that the violence of a small group of Palestinians in Munich furnishes the grounds from which to racially profile all Arab Americans, right? So an essentialized and racialized Arab other was created through coercive state policies, things like racial profiling, surveillance, visa checking, interviewing, and so on. To the security establishment, Munich demonstrated the quote-unquote potential that Arab Americans possessed for terrorism in general. Now you think about this, 
when whites commit such mass murder, particularly in the United States, there are no policies to systematically go after and surveil and get information and you know, uh, uh, profile white men. That's, that's not what happens, but this is what happened to Arabs post-1972. Um, and this is also the moment, the early 1970s, when the carceral state, right, people know that the U.S. imprisons more people as a percentage of the population than any other country in the world. This is also the moment that the carceral state is being built based on the idea of black criminals, black criminality. Uh, of course, the precursors go back earlier, but nevertheless, this is a pivotal moment. And it's not a coincidence that the Arab terrorist and the black criminal are created at the same time, because this is also the moment of the rise of neoliberalism, right? When the US goes into economic crisis and the last forms of Keynesian methods to resolve the crisis fail, um, the neoliberal ideas come to the fore. And neoliberalism right from its start is based on authoritarian modes of controlling dissent, right? Think about Chile, think about where neoliberalism was first introduced with Pinochet uh, in power. And in the UK, um, Stuart Hall and his co-authors in Policing the Crisis really, uh, that's one of the first analysis of how racism becomes a way of policing the crisis, of creating authoritarian uh, solutions and of increasing the powers uh, of the state to police dissent. So I'll come to a close with this. Why does such a historical materialist understanding of racism matter? Well, first and foremost, if race is not biological, but socially constructed, and if racism is a historically contingent project, then having such an analysis allows us to imagine ways of ending racism, right? If we believe that somehow any market of difference, such as skin color, biologically, uh, programs all of us to hate one another and that racism has always been with us and will always be with us, then we lose the ability to actually fight it and to end it. And so I'm going to use the words of the Peel sisters again uh, when they say race is not an idea but an ideology. It came into existence at a discernible historic moment for rationally understandable reasons and is subject to change for similar reasons. In other words, it is subject to being ended. And I think it's that kind of notion of ending racism, ending capitalism, and ending imperialism that certainly animates my work and my activism. And I hope you share that too. Thank you. I'm going to take a few questions at a time. So I'm also going to ask uh, Bridget and Samina to speak. Um, and also, actually, I should have mentioned this before. Um, just before you do speak, maybe you could introduce uh, yourself and just let us know who you are and where you're from. Okay, so uh, Bridget, next. We, sorry, am I muted? I've unmuted you now. Can you hear me? Yeah. Um, uh, we felt, A, a little plea. We enjoyed the talk very much. Could we have a little bit longer for breakout groups? So we find the uh, an amount of time very constricting. Um, what we wanted to ask a bit more about uh, was the relationship between um, the racialization, the construction of race, and uh, various historical events. And we were particularly thinking that um, perhaps there ought to be 
more emphasis on colonization as itself a process which racializes those who have been dispossessed of their land. Uh, for example, uh, the Zosa in South Africa or Zulus, um, and those who are then uh, exploited and oppressed, uh, forced into um, uh, production of raw materials, uh, rather than allowed to go on with their artisan industry, etc. Uh, in the case of China, Chinese um, form of colonization, you might think of the Opium War creating an image of Chinese as um, pathetic opium users with um, no intelligence, etc. Um, uh, in the case of America, the way in which Mexicans uh, are, are racialized uh, through American de facto colonization. Um, and we wondered whether you had any observations about that. So before, say, um, uh, um, Asian people come to Scotland, they've already been racialized, we're suggesting, via colonization. Thanks very much, Bridget. And on your first point about extending the time in the breakout rooms, we'll definitely take that on board and make sure we've got uh, more time. Uh, I'm going to take one more question just now and then I'll let Deepa come back on all of these incredibly interesting and detailed questions that have been asked. So I'll uh, ask Samina, can you come in now? And then afterwards I've got Kareem, uh, Carolina and Fiaz in the stack. Thanks. Okay, hi, I'm uh, Samina Akhtar and I'm a PhD student at Glasgow University, actually looking at state racism. Uh, so this, is, this was quite interesting uh, for me. Um, we talked about a few things in our group and we came up with a question about the racialization actually of the coronavirus itself. And uh, there's a debate going on in Britain because um, racialized groups, particularly black and Asian, uh, the Asian being in particular Pakistani and Bangladeshi um, uh, populations are about four times more likely to die from the virus. So there's a debate going on here uh, um, about kind of almost naturalizing that in terms of there must be something genetic or, and uh, linked to that is, well, they have underlying health conditions. And what we as activists are arguing is, well, the, even these underlying health conditions are a product or a result of systemic um, inequalities systemic racism and and also I'm going to add a bit we're kind of wondering okay we know that the similar um thing is happening in America where I, I can't remember exactly what the percentage or the disproportionate percentage of black people dying from from uh, the virus is but wondering what are the debates going on there as well and uh, what you've got to say about that thanks Thanks very much, Samina. Um, Deepa, do you want to come back in now? Okay. Uh, right, thank you uh, for those questions. Let me take up the anti-Chinese racism and the coronavirus first, and then I'll end with the colonization question. So <clears throat> in terms of uh, coronavirus deaths, one third of people who are dying in the United States are people of color, black and brown. Uh, um, 
I believe that's right. Is, am I right, Pete, or is it slightly higher? If whatever it is, there's a disproportionate number of people um, who are black and brown who are dying. And the question is why? And in the group that I was a part of, some of the ideas that are being floated is that, you know, genetics, you know, they are predisposed to die or some nonsense like that. And that's absolutely not true. As somebody in my group pointed out, it has to do one with the kind of jobs that, you know, black and brown people do. They are uh, a majority of essential workers, so they are being exposed far more often um, than um, others are. Second, it's uh, health uh, care inequality, right? We have a privatized for-profit healthcare system in this country. If you don't have access to healthcare and testing is still not easily available, by the way. Um, and hospital beds are completely uh, jam-packed. Um, people in New Jersey are talking about how if they fall sick, there is no hospital they can go to in their neighborhood because everyone you know, is, uh, is jam-packed. So there's access to healthcare, which is also having these outcomes. And certainly even before the coronavirus, we know that inadequate access to healthcare uh, for poor and working class black and brown people lead to greater deaths, preventable deaths, even under normal circumstances. And that's been being played out even more with the coronavirus. But the last thing I'll say is also this, which is that racism actually gets into your body. That is to say, it makes you sick, right? If you have to live in a society where you're dehumanized constantly, um, your mental health has an impact on your physical health, and there's certainly enough research to suggest that this is the case. So there are pre-existing conditions, such as heart disease or diabetes, which one can argue make black and brown people more susceptible to death with the coronavirus, but these two are the products of living in a racist society. Um, Will anti-Chinese racism be ramped up in the same way that Islamophobia was? Well, that depends. I mean, if there is something useful to be gained from uh, enmity with uh, China for going to war with China and so on, absolutely. But China occupies this really interesting position on the global stage, right? At least in the case of U.S., um, uh, much of the U.S. debt don't know what percentage of it uh, it is, but much of the bonds are held by the Chinese. So they have this antagonistic relationship. At the same time, they have to have cooperation with one another. So, um, you know, how much of this is going to turn into absolute warfare, um, we'll, we'll have to see. But certainly, at least from Obama's pivot to Asia uh, program, there's been a greater attempt to try to uh, squash China before it can rise to being the real threat to U.S. hegemony um, on the global stage. But and 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 you know, suddenly old ideas come back to furnish new racisms. Um, there was also a question in my group that, about Islamophobia, um, and suddenly there are tropes that go back all the way to the 12th century. This is when Islamophobia in Europe first begins. Um, I'm actually doing a second edition of my uh, Islamophobia, the Politics of Empire book, and right now I'm working on chapter one, uh, where I'm going through how, you know, certain notions of a violent Islam were developed in that context and that, you know, sort of uh, exist uh, from then on and, and it's very useful, right, certainly in the case of the terrorists and so forth. But at the same time, I just want to dispel this notion that somehow the relationship between Europeans and their Near Eastern neighbors has always been hostile, right? The kind of clash of civilizations 
Samuel Huntington rhetoric is absolutely false. Um, if you read about the relationship between, for instance, Christians, Muslims, and Jews in Al-Andalus, in uh, the Iberian Peninsula, this is, you don't find that, right? You have intermarriages. I'm not saying there wasn't hostility or discrimination, but you have intermarriages, you have a good deal of sharing of scientific language uh, and research, um, and you know, particularly in the fields of astronomy, but also medicine, in fact. Um, Europe could not have gone through the Renaissance had it not been for the work of the Arab scholars, both in uh, the Abbasid Caliphate as well as uh, in Al-Andalus. So the picture is really complicated. It's when ideas become useful to racialized groups, particularly for the political e elite to advance an imperial agenda, that's when groups get racialized, right? That's the point. So in line with that, the question of colonialism is absolutely central to racial formation. I quickly sort of brushed through that part, my bad, I didn't have much time, but colonialism, modern colonialism, particularly late 18th and then the 19th and early 20th century, um, lays the groundwork for the systematic dehumanization of people in uh, Asia, the Chinese, the Indians, um, Africans, um, and so forth, to justify the plunder of resources, to justify the taking over of uh, people's lands, you know, when you're talking about um, Algeria um, and, and, and South Africa uh, and so forth. And the, so the point that Bridget made is absolutely right, which is that even before immigrants from, um, you know, former colonial countries can come to the United Kingdom, they're already seen as racialized uh, others. And the way that A. Sivanandan puts it is, you know, sort of response that immigrants have had is, we are here because you were there, right? Um, and so uh, we're in the belly of the beast because you messed up our country. So anyway. Do you want to take some more? Yeah, absolutely. Thanks very much. Um, so next I've got Kareem, Carolina and Fiaz. Kareem. There we go. Okay, I should be unmuted. Um, thanks. Um, I, so yeah, I'm a public health professional and like Samina, I'm also a PhD student at Glasgow. Um, it's interesting that Deepa uh, mentioned about race and mental health because that's exactly what my PhD is working on. So it's, I like to have that, it's nice to see that connection there. Um, my group, we actually had a lot of ideas generated and I think our question is more to do with more of a theoretical um, angle. So we talked about racism as practices versus ideology and we were trying to get a sense of um, if Deepa could maybe articulate more this idea of how fascist groups and neoliberal groups are both using racism but are there distinct ways in which they're using racism in sort of to promote their own political agendas given you would think that they are opposite sides of political spectrum but they're both using racism essentially in a way to get what they want so we were hoping if we could get a bit more clarification on those other distinct types of racisms or are they sort of just using them similarly thanks very much kareem uh, carolina Uh, you need to unmute yourself. I can unmute you. Do you hear me now? Yes. Okay, great. Hi, I'm Carolina. Um, I am connecting from Lima, Peru. Um, I'm a master's in ethnicity and multiculturalism. I just finished it last, last year. 
uh, but I'm back here now. Uh, so um, we really love the um, the presentation. It was absolutely interesting. And um, but uh, we got like two two questions. We would like to um, to uh, know to know more about them. So the first one is about the method. Um, is um, in in whose interests interests do you think uh, these Chinese constru constructions uh, are ma uh, making themselves? Like uh, who is benefit benefiting from them? And uh, the second one was, uh, it's very particular, it, it comes actually from me, uh, and is that, um, can we say that the mestizo category could have been created for the same purposes as, as the white workers? Yeah, that will be it. Thanks, Carolina. And Thanks. Fia. Are you there, Fies? Well, Deepa, why don't you come back on uh, these questions first, and um, if Fies is still with us, he can come in after that. Sure. <clears throat> um, I realize I forgot uh, the question about the defeat of Arab nationalism. Um, so very quickly, um, Essentially, coming out of World War II, the U.S. is one of two superpowers on the world stage, and um, the uh, conflict between the Soviet Union and the United States has played out around the world. Um, Arab nationalism, secular Arab nationalism, as represented by uh, Nasser in Egypt or uh, Mossadegh in Iran, um, these are the sort of key challenges to US geopolitical interests um, in the region. Um, there were also communist parties that take all sorts of crazy positions because they're under the dictates of the um, Stalinist Comintern and then the common forum. So um, I won't go into that, but there is a left, there's a huge and vibrant uh, socialist communist left and so on. Um, by the time we come to the uh, 70s, in various parts of, um, you know, the Middle East, the left is in decline, right? Um, starting first in Egypt, but then uh, spreading elsewhere. Of course, Mossadegh is overthrown in 53 and so forth. And so the shape of anti-imperialist resistance gets replaced, right, when you go, by the time you go into the 1980s, after the Iranian revolution of 1979, then the rise of uh, Hamas in uh, Palestine, the rise of Hezbollah in Lebanon, and so on, resistance to U.S. imperialism takes the form of Islamism. And this is the context, really, for the shift from the Arab terrorist to the Muslim terrorist, which is the dominant um, image today. So, I think that was the question you were asking me, uh, but that's, um, I hope that's uh, at least a quick and short answer. My understanding of the first question was that fascist groups are using racism as are liberal groups, correct? Or neoliberal groups, and uh, what makes them distinct? Um, I'll answer that in terms of Islamophobia again which is that there is an international coalition of right-wing uh, groups who have a very blatant form of anti-Muslim racism, right? They have all the most vile stereotype and 
um, you know, that uh, Muslim men are out to rape uh, white Christian women or that these people are prone to violence. They're like these Manchurian candidates and you have to lock them up immediately. Um, and that, you know, Muslim women are these poor, oppressed, sad, sad creatures. Why? Because they wear a hijab, right? I mean, um, one of the things about the turn towards Islam as a form of resistance in the Middle East um, is that it's also reflected in immigrants in the diaspora where people turn to articles of religious clothing as a way to assert their resistance within societies that see them as an enemy. So there are all sorts of complex reasons why women wear uh, the hijab and so forth. But nevertheless, uh, the right has the most sort of base, vile stereotypes. Now that's, that's not true of liberals and neoliberal groups, right? Because we live in supposedly a post-racial era. Racism is a thing of the past. And for the vast majority, this kind of ideology doesn't play nearly as well, particularly among liberal uh, 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 audiences. And so you think of the case of Obama, right? Obama, because his middle name was Hussein, was accused of being Muslim. And the way that he responded to that is to say, oh, no, 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 I am Christian. I go to a church every uh, Sunday, what have you, and so on, as if to say that there's something wrong with being Muslim, right? So liberal Islamophobia, liberal anti-Muslim racism is very uh, murky in that sense. That is, the end result is the same. That is to delegitimize Islam, is to somehow cast dispersions uh, on Muslims, but to do it in a way that actually sort of uh, is very subtle and that bifurcates between the good Muslims, that is people we can work with and who are the agents of empire, and bad Muslims, those who we cannot uh, control. And therefore it looks like, oh, so there is no essentialized Muslim race being created. Um, and so this must be realistic, you know, and so it's not racism. So uh, that's a quick answer. Finally, uh, on method, um, who, who benefits from anti-Chinese racism? Um, essentially, the, the slightly longer history in this country, and just to show you sort of the hypocrisy, it has nothing to do with the shape of people's eyes that this racism is being produced, right? So if you look at the Second World War and after the Japanese bombing of Pearl Harbor, over a million people of Japanese descent in the United States are put into these uh, concentration camps, are put into these uh, you know, makeshift places uh, and interned and incarcerated. Um, vast majority of them US citizens, right? Um, but as the US starts to develop you know, uh, Japan as a loyal client to the United States, these stereotypes begin to go away so much so that Ronald Reagan actually issues an apologies to, uh, to Japanese Americans in the late 1980s. But at the same time as Japan has been sort of quelled as a threat to US hegemony on the global stage, you start to see the rise of China. And in neoconservative circles, right from the early 1990s after the collapse of the Soviet Union, there's a sense in which this could be the next power that actually challenges US authority on the world stage, which is why Samuel Huntington, the Clash of Civilizations guy, actually not only targets the Islamic civilization as a threat to the West, but also the Chinese civilization, right? So stereotypes of Chinese, um, anti-Chinese propaganda comes into being at that point, because always when a nation is at war 
or is in competition with an outside force, those who represent those people within the nation are policed, are racialized, are, are targeted. This happens, by the way, to Germans as well during the First World War, right? The US is at war, uh, goes into the First World War, and Germans are also uh, targeted in this sort of way. So that's the longer history. Now the question is, given the global integration uh, economically of China with Europe and so on, um, it makes the situation slightly complicated. And I can't predict, I don't study US relations with China, so I can't predict where this is going to lead and whether it's going to actually rise to the level of Islamophobia. Thanks so much, Deepa. And Fiaz, I saw, was still with us. He yeah, uh, sorry, uh, I think my microphone was uh, muted, so I couldn't come through to you. Um, I'm from uh, West Yorkshire, um, uh, urban districts of West Yorkshire, and uh, as Samina mentioned earlier, some of the health inequalities are quite significant uh, for our locality. Um, and Samina kindly shared the Zoom link, so it's my first content meeting uh, I'm participating in. And the question from our group was, uh, what does it mean for uh, uh, abolishing racism in 21st century, um, following on the works of sisters some 30 years ago, when currently um, race is a significant issue for some people? I'm sorry, could you repeat that? I don't think yeah. I understand. What does it mean to abolish race in 21st century? Okay. Um, particularly when uh, it seems to be, well, in practical terms, and certainly it's a significant issue for most people currently, and uh, in terms of uh, re revisiting the work of uh, sisters some 30 years ago, the academic work. Thanks very much, Yes, Deepa, do you want to... Um respond to that question and also uh, use this time to just sum up with any closing remarks that you'd like to make, including the whole discussion. Sure. Um, so what does it mean to end or abolish racism in the 21st century? Wow, that's a, <laughs> that's a huge task, isn't it? Um, that is, if we understand that the processes by which people are turned into racism are rooted within structures, within unjust and unequal structures, then what it means to end racism is to actually dismantle those structures, right? Um, and so what that takes and what that's going to take is uh, solidarity between people of different so-called racialized groups um, participating in every form of struggle that they can. Right now, uh, to block with our uh, Asian, our East Asian brothers and sisters against the racist hate crimes uh, that they are experiencing, right? Uh, it means white people putting themselves out uh, in front of uh, the fascists, the right-wingers, and protecting to the extent that we could in socially distant ways. Uh, I don't even know what that means but um, both in social media as well as in the real world, um, fighting against acts of uh, racism that we may, that we may see um, you know, uh, East Asian looking people facing. I mean, I have friends who are like, I don't wanna go to the grocery store because I don't know who's gonna do something to me. Just yesterday, an East Asian um, scientist was killed, was shot and killed. Um, and so it's a scary time to be East Asian looking and be in the United States right now. So very immediately, 
blocking against that and doing what we can, both in terms of solidarity statements with our brothers and sisters, but also organizing in other ways is important. But in the big scheme of things, I really think that dismantling capitalism is the only way that we can actually uh, put an end to racism because, um, I mean, you think about slavery, right? Slavery ended um, and then a new form of uh, slavery started up with sharecropping in the South. Uh, there's a book called Slavery by Another Name. Um, and then you think about what happens to African-Americans around housing. There's a certain practice called redlining where they're not allowed to buy in white only areas and they're forced to buy houses in areas where the value does not go up. And there's a really great book by Kianga Yamhata Taylor, who's a good friend of mine. It's called uh, Race for Profit, which is about how the uh, banking industry, the mortgage industry, that they're both the same, of course, the insurance industry and uh, the government, uh, the FHA, actually colluded to, um, you know, to, to make massive profits from African-Americans through a, a, a kind of housing scheme that would then impoverish African-Americans even more, right? So both at the point of production, where uh, black people are paid less than their white counterparts, but also in the space of social reproduction, in housing and your ability to live, they face expropriation, exploitation, and so forth. So all these venues become spaces where we can struggle, where we can resist, and at the very least, try to undo these practices in the here and now, but with a recognition that in the long term, capitalism is a system that relies on systematic inequalities that relies on exploitation of domestic as well as international labor and will use racialization to extract the maximum profits and to divide people.